0: Hi folks, this is Brad Watson, pastor at Nexus Church. We are glad you have found our sermon podcast and that you're interested in our teachings. If you've ever considered financially supporting our work at Nexus Church, you can do that at nexuschurch.ca slash give. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. There we go. Thanks, Dave and Ben. That song written by Bruce Springsteen about the war in... Iraq and Afghanistan and the plight of the person of faith, thinking through what they were called to do. I love that line, there are certain things that will take a God-filled soul and fill it with devils and dust. Shakespeare, in his play, The, uh, The Merchant of Venice, he utters this line, even the devil can cite scripture for his purpose. And he does, in fact, twice in the New Testament. So, while trying to tempt Jesus in the wilderness... sir, so it's just a little echoey down here for me. Can we draw that down? Thank you. Um, even the devil can cite Scripture for his purpose. And it leads me to two hypothetical questions. The first one is this. If you could remove any passage of Scripture from the Bible, what passage would you remove? And second what passage of scripture do you believe has caused more harm, more death, more evil than any other? And while you're thinking about those two questions, also think about this. Is it possible you left your car running in the parking garage? Because I've been notified that an Altima, a reddish one, CYZT970, your car's running. Nobody here or anyone that's willing to? All right, okay, we're going to go with that. But if you could remove any passage of Scripture from the Bible, what would it be? And what do you think the passage of Scripture is that has caused more harm, more death, more evil than any other? It's an interesting exercise to consider. You know, many persons uh, throughout history have tried to remove certain portions of Scripture, you could say. Thomas Jefferson, right, he wanted to remove anything that smacked of the miraculous He wanted to get rid of the resurrection from the Gospels. Thomas Jefferson, Mr. President Guy, wanted a a Bible without the miraculous. Or um, Martin Luther himself, he wanted to remove Hebrews, James, Jude, and Revelation. It's interesting to me. There's always been discussion. Maybe we should get rid of these parts of the Bible. But if you had to remove one passage of Scripture, what would it be? And, you know, initially when I first asked myself this question, it was obvious for me. If I had to, I think I'd like to remove the part where Jesus says, love your enemies. Because, you know, on certain days when I'm more of a curmudgeon than others, that one feels like it would be a good one to get rid of. Mind you, it would pretty much neuter the Jesus path, so that might not work. But in studying through the history of the church, I've come to change my mind. I've come to believe that a certain passage of Scripture has caused more harm more death, more evil than any other, and I think it's going to surprise you which one. This is the one I would remove if I could, and it's from Romans 13. "'If you want to have no fear of the ruling power, do what is good, and it will praise you. It is God's servant, you see, for you and your good. But if you do evil, be afraid. The sword it carries is no empty gesture.' Is God's servant, you see, an agent of justice to bring his anger on evildoers. That's why it's necessary to submit, not only to avoid punishment, but because of conscience. The general idea here is the government, in some capacity, is God's servant to bring about justice. And with that, my first premise of the morning, this passage has caused more harm, more death, more evil than all other passages of Scripture combined. For Christians looking to side with the devil, you could say, well, here's a proof text that will work real well. Of course, I don't see us removing this passage anytime soon, so better not to remove or ignore it, but to get this passage interpreted right. So that's what we'll do this morning, but with that, welcome again to our Revisionist History series here at Nexus. I hope the series has been gently provocative It's also a looking glass Sunday, as you might have noticed by now. We've got some stations up there for us to interact with at the end of the service. It was also, as Carla mentioned, the beginning of Lent, a 40 day, six week journey that brings us with intention and purpose towards Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. Of course, Lent is known for many things. One of them, of course, is Lent is a time of repentance and confession. And so, to that end, it seemed like the perfect week, the perfect opportunity to peek into the dark corners of the Christian faith and Christian history and do a little confessing, a little reckoning with the worst of what the Christian world has wrought. You could almost say this week is looking at the church's antihero. And what this one passage and the devils who use it have unleashed on the world. And last week, you'll recall, I I took us up to about the 5th century. Christianity, when it first emerged, was on the fringes of the empire, but it had some radically new values and ideas. And over time, though, slowly started to infiltrate the ancient world. And by the late 3rd century, Constantine had converted to Christianity. Subsequent emperors were all Christian. In fact, by by around the 500s, almost everyone in Rome was a Christian. And many great things happened because of that. Gladiatorial games were abolished. Infanticide was outlawed. Even slavery, the earliest calls for the end of slavery, come by the third century. The most radical of Christians saying, we have to end this institution But, when Rome adopted Christianity as its own, a Pandora's box was opened, one that we haven't been able to shut since then. Brian Zahn sums it up well. He says, the church is given keys, not a sword. Yet, when Rome offered the sword of political power to the church by making it the state-sponsored Church of the Empire in 380, the church willingly embraced the offer of political power. It was probably an inevitable mistake, but it's been our bane ever since. There are always strings attached to Caesar's gift. For a seat at the table of political privilege and a hand upon the sword of political power, the emperor expects the kind of allegiance that can only lead to compromise. Christ is ever and always a challenge to the aspirations of empire. But when we get too cozy with Caesar, our willingness to take a prophetic stand quickly evaporates. Church got into bed with Rome, with power, with politics 1,500 years ago, and it unleashed the great temptation for power. It hasn't gone away in 1,500 years. We still see it today with evangelicals in the Republican Party, Orthodox Church sanctioning Putin's war in Russia. When that happens, compromise is always inevitable. Good intentions, what might have started as good intentions, can have... Damning consequences. They say, right, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So it was for me when I was sitting at home watching the Blue Jays game. And uh, my kids burst into the front door. They were quite excited. They were quite shaken. Burst in the front door. They said, Dad, oh no. They've been taking the dog for a walk. Dad, oh no. We were walking home and we saw a baby bird. It was on the ground. It couldn't move. It must have fallen out of its nest. I said, huh, that's too bad. They said, it's just just a block away. Will you come and rescue the bird? And I thought, well, yes, children. I, I will do that for you. So I went to investigate. Sure enough, a little baby bird on the ground. Not enough to fly or even walk. Had its mouth open. It looked up into the tree. There I could see the nest. And I knew... You don't want to get your scent on it, right? So I went home and I put on my big winter gloves and I got the ladder out from the shed and I walked down the street with my ladder and winter mitts on and I picked up the baby bird and I climbed to the very top of the ladder. I couldn't quite reach. I was on the very top rung. So, this is dangerous already. And I took the baby bird and I reached up to the nest and right as I put it in... It fell in and two birds fell out. (laughs) So now I got three baby birds. So try it again. I get up there with my gloves and I get right to the top and I, I put them in. And this time the nest falls down too. I got a nest and three baby birds. This time, I'm like, I got it. I got it. I'm just going to have to do a little leap off the ladder, you know? So I put all three baby birds in the nest. I climb the ladder. I I got it to stay in the tree. But two days later, the kid said, Dad, there's dead baby birds on the side of the road by the nest. I don't know what I had done wrong. Everything. (laughs) Everything. Baby birds died. And in some ways I see that as a parable of the church throughout the centuries. We can do good. If we just had a little political power, we can, we can do good. And in the end, when the church gives in to the temptation of power, the thinking if we just have power, then we can do right in the world. Compromise is always inevitable. And good intentions have damning consequences. And it was like, geez, where do I even begin with this series? Because the sins of the church throughout the centuries are so many, uh, it's hard to know where to start and stop. So I decided to focus on the three major tragedies of history and Christianity. They are these. You can see, this is an interesting little chart. Death toll, by the way, in the millions And so you can see up at the top, guilty, the gray area there is Christians on both sides. Where do you put the fault? Not quite sure. Not guilty, that's good, at the bottom. You can see the three big ones, the Crusades, 30 Years' War, and the Conquest of America. You know, the Crusades were um, this wave, five waves of campaigns launched to recapture Muslim-held territory, Jerusalem in particular for Christendom. When the empire of Rome collapsed around the 6th century, Muslim-led caliphates from Persia spread west and were taking territory. Eventually, they uh, conquered Jerusalem in 637, I believe it is. And around the year 1000, the, the, the church split in two. You got the Holy Roman Church of the West and the Eastern Orthodox Church in the East... And as Islam spread west, it came to bump up right against Constantinople and there was some friction there. And so the Eastern Church sent word to the Western Church, hey, we need help, we're under attack. And it led to this five waves of campaigns, thwart Islamic invasion and to take back Jerusalem. And it's interesting, until the last hundred years or so, nobody seemed to care about this. It was largely seen as just, well, that was embarrassing for the Christians. They lost pretty bad. It wasn't seen as a moral stain on our reputation. Rather, it was merely a historical defeat. Sort of like, well, Christendom lost... Palestinian lands remained in Islamic hands until the British Empire came along. In fact, some historians are even want to sort of shrug their shoulder, like Rodney Stark. He says, the Crusades were not unprovoked. They're not the first round of European colonialism. They were not conducted for land, loot, or converts. The Crusaders were not barbarians who victimized the cultiva- cultivated Muslims. The Crusades are not a blot on the history of Christianity. No apologies are required. Mm, that doesn't sit Quite well with me. There are many myths about the Crusades for sure, and like most historic events, there is the need for nuance. Even still, I don't think anyone in good conscience can just shrug their shoulders. Have to own our story. Historian John Dixon says the Crusades stand as a symbol. The church is all too human capacity for dogma, hatred, and violence towards enemies. Admitting this reality should be instinctive for genuine Christians. Marked a dark turn, this was not the, the first time in the Christian faith, but for largely the first 500 years, Christians were marked for their willingness to die for their faith. But something was introduced when Rome and the church got in bed together, the willingness to kill for your faith. And again, it's history. It's like, ah, it's history. We're talking millions of deaths here. And then there's, of course, the 30 years war. I won't say much of that except to say if you thought the worship wars of the past 50 years were bad, this was the real deal. This was... Protestant countries, Catholic countries, Christians killing Christians, Protestants on Catholics, Catholics on Protestants in the millions. And then the conquest of America's most conservative estimate I can find is that at least 20 million indigenous people died as a result of European colonialism and conquest. Of course, it's always more complicated than it would seem, you know? recently read the biography of Juan Cortes, the Conquistador, sent by King Charles, Spanish King, to take Mexico for Spain. And a fascinating account, because it's not always so simple as, oh, bad Europeans show up and kill all the innocent good people. I mean, the Aztecs in Mexico were a notoriously brutal empire. They enslaved everyone around them, human sacrifices everywhere. But in the name of cross, Juan Cortez goes in and just destroys everything. It's kind of a mixed thing, right? He, in his biography, in his stated journal, he wanted to end human sacrifices, yes, but it's also very clear he wanted to steal a lot of gold from them to bring back to Spain. He also wanted to make sure they bowed the knee to the king of Spain and maybe convert them if they weren't willing to go along with the plan. And all of these things, particularly the conquest of America, always... The Americas done in the name of the cross, these mixed motivations. I mean, it's not just, again, history. It's something that reverberates through generations. Is something that has, you know, direct echoes and influence on our residential school system here in Canada. We say to ourselves, from this vantage point, how could these things have happened? How, how could these things be done in the name of Jesus And what is the lesson for us today? Well, again, for those looking for an excuse to pillage and plunder, Romans 13 is a real good one. If you want to have no fear of the ruling power, do what is good and it will praise you. It's God's servant for you and your good. But if you do evil, be afraid. The sword it carries is no empty gesture. It's God's servant, you see, an agent of justice to bring his anger on evildoers. That's why it's necessary to submit, not only to avoid punishment, but because of conscience. And throughout history, this passage has been used and abused countless times to justify all sorts of nonsense, most notably for our purposes this morning, war and conquest. And thinking it's always gone this way. Well, see, God ordained the government, they're God's servants. It's given the sword to the government to execute vengeance. And if my government happens to be King Richard the Lionheart, and he, being the servant of God, wants me to go to the Middle East and kill some Muslims, well, so be it. Or if my king, the government, is King Charles and wants me to head to Mexico and steal their gold from them, well he is the Lord's servant. Or if Hitler is the government and wants me to march into France or truck some people off on trains, well, he is the Lord's servant. Or if my government, the United States or Canada, wants me to send me to Iraq, Afghanistan to mete out vengeance for past sins, well, they are the Lord's servant government carries the sword for a reason, but in my mind, this is the most misguided and vilest of interpretations, and allow me to explain why. To employ this passage this way is to say, Paul trumps Jesus. That's what's being done when this passage is used this way, because if we take the Sermon on the Mount at face value, there's just no room for it. Any interpretation of Scripture must have Paul line up with Jesus, not the other way around, have to center our reading on Jesus. I'm quite sure Paul would be entirely behind that. And secondly, how grossly out of context it is to use Romans 13 without reading Romans 12. In Romans 12, Paul is obviously drawing on the Sermon on the Mount to tell citizens living in Rome to live by the Sermon on the Mount, to bless those who persecute them, to refuse to retaliate, to act charitably towards enemies. And whatever Paul is saying here about Caesar, the sword, and vengeance, however we might want to think about that, Jesus' path, people, are forever and always called to renounce vengeance, love our enemies, turn the other cheek. That's always the Jesus way. And when you start to frame it that way, it starts to become very clear what Paul is doing Paul is calling Christians living in Rome to obey civil laws and not be drawn into violent revolutionary movements because Paul understood that the kingdom of Christ would never be established by violence. And so I'd say what Paul is commending here is some kind of ancient police function. I think that is a very, very important distinction I've been in the back of a police car exactly once. And it had to do with a bottle of peach schnapps. I was 16 years old. And my buddy, I don't know how he got it, but he got a bottle of peach schnapps. And he said, what do you think? Yeah, this sounds fun. So we drove, me and two buddies, we drove to Churchill Park in Cambridge. We're in the park drinking the peach schnapps, and um, having a grand old time, and into the park pulled two police cars, and three 16-year-old boys suddenly went, oh, no, they're after us. <laughs> so we jumped in the car, drove out of the park, got about 100 meters, and my friend said, I'm driving, and I've just been drinking. And We thought, this is really bad. So we pulled over and ran into the forest, as you do. Scared 16-year-olds hiding in the forest going, oh boy, we're in big, big trouble. And sure enough, two cop cars pulled in. We're looking out from the bushes going, oh no. And we're like, what's our plan? Like, let's pretend we're hiking. Yeah, great idea. (laughs) So we sauntered along and eventually came across the police. Boys, what are you doing? Oh, we're just hiking. You left your car in the middle of nowhere and ran into the forest. Oh no. Put in the back of the police car. That was not a fun ride home. It wasn't fun arriving home. No charges were laid. No police record. That's my only real interaction with the police. I'm hoping to not have any others. But I think what Paul is getting at is pretty simple keep your heads down. Don't be idiots. Don't mess with the law. Obey the laws so far as you can. Don't go looking for trouble, Christians. And whatever the police function of Rome was at the time, it had a purpose of maintaining some semblance of civil society. And I find this a very interesting time to have this discussion because we're at a time in our own history when the actions of police in North America have never been under greater scrutiny. And I think that's good and it should be very welcome. We definitely know that people of color suffer under police brutality at a much higher rate than the rest of us do. Moreover, we're starting to realize that police officers trained in violence and guns and force might not be the best people to deal with certain problems. And since George Floyd, there has been calls to defund the police, cut ballooning police budgets. I think that is all good. Has its place, I have a feeling even Paul would be like, of course. Because it's important also to remember with the police function that that Paul only went so far, and it was the police function of Rome that ended up beheading Paul. So Paul said, Hey, try to stay out of trouble, but if it comes for you, follow my lead and be willing to give up your head. But I think there's a big distinction necessary here between a police function in order to maintain some sort of civil society and war. I think there's a vast chasm of difference in saying there's a place for a police function to maybe arrest sexual predators or burglars or 16-year-old boys drinking in the park, whatever it is. There's a vast difference between that and the government sending me to loot and plunder and kill in its name for Paul to be a Jesus path person was not to be an anarchist. The very following verses sound much the same. This is also, Paul says, why you pay taxes. The authorities are God's servants. They give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay your taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect, if honor, then honor. I think Paul is simply saying be a good citizen. Pay taxes. Follow the laws. Don't go looking for trouble, but at the same time, if it comes for you, let them take your head. At most, here, at most, I think we get Paul commending some sort of police function. Doesn't mean it's above the law. Doesn't mean it's not subject to scrutiny and budget cuts. But at most, I think you can pull that from Romans 13. But what I'm definitely convinced of is that under no circumstances can these verses ever be used by the church or Christians to justify wielding the sword of power and empire. There's not a chance. Paul thought these words would somehow change our minds and go, oh, we can toss the Sermon on the Mount. And yet the stains of the church and the Christian faith is that time after time for the last 1500 years, that's exactly what the church has done. There are consequences to that, brutal ones. And yet what's fascinating to me is that until the last 100 to 200 years, outside the church there was no voice of critique really. Of course that was because Christianity was in a place of power. But for the vast majority of the past 2,000 years, nobody outside of the Christian faith has been critiquing it. It was like, hey, if the church at times gets its hands dirty, well, everybody else is doing it. All's fair in love and war. I just watched a biography on Netflix, uh, Netflix of Alexander the Great, right? Nobody's sitting around going, wow, those were some really mean tactics he used. It was like, wow, what a leader conquered all these lands. Nobody questions or cares about certain historical leaders and the measures that they used. But always throughout history, the church was critiquing itself from within. Always, always throughout history, whenever a bound was overstepped, the voice of the prophetic saying, no, 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 we've turned. During the years of Nazi rule in Germany, when the vast majority of Christians lined up behind Hitler, it was people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer saying, no, 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 we've got this wrong. During the era of Jim Crow laws, it was the black church and Martin Luther King Jr. calling the church back to itself. During the time of colonialism, it was... People like the scholar, pastor, poet Alcuin of York who pleaded with violent colonial powers and missionaries, stop doing what you're doing. A person can be drawn into the faith, not forced into it. Must follow the example of the apostles. Let them be preachers, not plunderers. For faith arises from the will, but not from compulsion. I'm going to ask Dave to come because I want to also concentrate on Francis of Assisi. Who during the dark, dark days of the Crusades, it was people like Francis of Assisi who carried the true light of the Jesus path. And Francis of Assisi, having given up all worldly wealth, he traveled to the front lines of the battlefields of the Crusades. At this point, it was in Egypt. And he met with the Christian powers there and begged for them to lay down their weapons Of course, it didn't work. They ignored him, and so he did something incredibly bold. He asked to meet with the Sultan of Egypt at the time. If it won't work for me to preach to the Christians, let me go preach to the Muslims then. Tell them to lay down their arms. So he went. He was allowed, a fascinating thing to be allowed to do. Incredibly bold request. While the Sultan wasn't convinced by Francis, said, nah, don't buy it, he still let him go and spared his life. And Francis walked away alive. He hadn't made a difference, but he had kept preaching and praying for peace, and through it all, his embrace of nonviolence and persuasion. At the risk of his own life, he shows for us what true crossbearing looks like. Francis tried to end the madness of the Crusades. He was ultimately unsuccessful. They came to their bloody end, having accomplished nothing. But to me, someone like Francis is a reminder that always, even within the darkest times of the church, there's always been a light shining, calling us back to our better selves, calling the church into account and insisting we walk, not by the way of the sword, but by the way of Jesus. And while nobody can directly trace this prayer back to Francis himself, the earliest record we have of it is I think actually the early 1900s, but it's been a prayer that we've attributed to Francis and his peacemaking quest ever since. And I try to pray this prayer every morning and try to take it slow, but I think there's something incredibly powerful about this prayer. I want to read it to you now slowly. It goes this way. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace where there is hatred, let me bring love. Where there's offense, let me bring pardon. Where there is discord, let me bring union. And Where there is error, let me bring truth. Where there is doubt, let me bring faith. Where there's despair, let me bring hope. Where there is darkness, let me bring your light. Where there is sadness, let me bring your joy. O Lord, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that one receives, it is in self-forgetting that one finds, it is in forgiving that one is forgiven, and it is in dying that one awakens to eternal life. To look at the story and history of our faith, the history of the church, is to find a puzzling mirror, a confusing storyline, because the church has, without question, changed the world in the most dramatic of ways, and yet the story of the church is always, to me, Christ hung between two thieves. And for all the good the world has received from the church, far too often it's been reduced to dust and ashes and brought ill and evil to the world but Carla showed me this line from Jan Richardson it's thrilled my soul ever since every time I think about the church over the centuries reduced to dust and ashes this question just rings to me Jan Richardson says do you not know what the Holy One can do with ashes and this morning we want to practice Ash Wednesday on Sunday Because Carla and I had this idea, why don't we do an Ash Wednesday service and we'll stand in the parking lot of the odd and you guys could come and visit us and we'd give you the sign of the cross in dust and ashes. And then we thought about it for a while and realized no one's going to show up. So (laughs) instead we thought, why don't we make Ash Wednesday Ash Sunday? We want to invite you this morning to this looking glass reflection to come and maybe jot down some answers at the stations behind us here, station one, station two, station three. This morning, we want to look back not only at the church and its history, but on our own lives as well. And at station one, we want you to come and reflect on what Paul says, right? That all we can see right now are like puzzling reflections in a mirror, We want to come and ask you to reflect on the ways that the church and its history have given you puzzling, distorted images of maybe yourself, maybe of God and faith as well. Beyond that space to reflect on your own life, what seems confusing or puzzling or distorted? Where in life are you not able to see clearly right now? Take some time, jot them down. We've kind of made chicken wire whaling wall, you could say, and then just... Stick it in there. I'll be honest, we're hoping to use this for a collective project down the road. So if you want to remain anonymous, please don't put your name. If you don't mind your name being on it, go ahead and put that down. Now at the second station, we want to reflect on our mortality. As the church so often has been reduced to dust and ashes throughout history, so that's the fate of us all. We'll all return to dust and die. Between then and now, though, there are times in life where maybe our insides feel like dust and ashes. And so you come to this station, and Carlar or I will be there to do the imposition of ashes. We've never done here. It's kind of a mainline thing. But it's beautiful. And you can have it on your hand if you want or your forehead. Carla and I will simply say to you, dust you are, and to dust you will return. Reminder of our mortality. But there's places at that station too to reflect and jot down some ideas. Where does life feel like death right now? Where do you feel like you've been left with just dust and ashes? What have you lost? What are you afraid of losing? And then final station over here where we want to remind you that while in all likelihood, you will lose everything that you love. Love will return to you in a different way because, again, do you not know what the Holy One can do with ashes? We hope this station might be a place that you can reflect on and maybe find hope. Scribble down some thoughts. Where are you finding hope? What ashes might be hiding embers that are ready to burst back into flame? What aspect of your faith or the church gives you hope what is your hope for the church? And so we've got, hey, we always try to get you out of here on time, but look at this 11: 1120, so you can mingle at your own pace, but I invite you to come, some music in the background, take your time at the stations, reflect, jot down some answers if you want, and then whenever seems right to you, you can be on your way, but I'll call you forward now to interact at the Looking Glass Stations. Thank you. Feel free to hang out.